This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with the fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Brett Stevens. Brett is one of the great public intellectuals in our country and has been now for almost two decades. He has been the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, an editor at Commentary Magazine, an editorialist at the Wall Street Journal, and now has a column in the New York Times. Brett, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you for uh, having me on, Mark. So your chosen passage is uh, Genesis 14, a magnificent passage that is... uh, often overlooked in biblical discussions and commentary. Well, Mark, let let me preface whatever I'm going to say by noting that I am to Torah scholarship what John Belushi was to sobriety. Um, So, Well, I I don't think that's entirely true because in Leon Cass's magnificent book on Genesis, you are quoted and cited many times, and that was written probably when you were in your 20s. So the the story behind that is that I wangled my way into Leon's seminar on Genesis when I was a sophomore in college, and I felt a little bit overawed by him and by the fact that I I was, I think, the youngest person in the class. It was mostly seniors. I think there were even a couple graduate students in it. And for our first paper, I wrote something on Genesis 14, which appealed to me because it is among the most political of chapters in Genesis. And then I waited for two weeks to get the paperback convinced I had failed. He asked me as he was returning the papers to stay for a minute after class, which I figured meant he he was going to ask for a rewrite. And then, in fact, he told me how much he liked it. And then to my uh, amazement, uh, about a decade later, he cited me in his, or he cited the paper I'd written for him. And that's probably my proudest my proudest boast intellectually that Leon Cass cited, cited something I'd written as an undergraduate. But it appealed to my interests in politics, and in particular in um, foreign policy, because this is really the story of the genesis, so to speak, of a Jewish concept of foreign policy, a Jewish concept of uh, just war. That's why I thought it would be worth your listeners' time to discuss it. Very interesting. So uh, tell us first, what happens in Genesis 14 to lead into this being the foundation of the Jewish philosophy of uh, just war and of um, international engagement? Well, let's just back up a step to remember what happened in, in Genesis 13. Abram returns with Lot from Egypt, and he returns a very rich man. And a strife begins to develop between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. So Abram, to avoid familial strife with his nephew, says, look, you choose. If you'll go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And Lot foolishly looks down at the Jordan Valley, sees that it is fruitful, notices that there are uh, cities there. The the Bible tells us it uh, it looks like a garden to him. So off he goes. And then God tells Abram to walk the land and that it will be to his descendants, or his, his descendants will be as numerous as dust. 
And so Abram walks the land, and there he is living when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of, of the valley, rebel against their Babylonian masters. In the 13th year, I think, in, yeah, in the 13th year, they rebel. And in the 14th year, the Babylonians decide to uh, take care of business, as, as they did historically many times over all the way until the present. And so the Babylonians come conquering one nation after another. In fact, the real king there is a guy called uh, Kedolaomer, who is, who's in fact present-day Iran. So I don't know how relevant that is. But anyway, they start conquering one city after uh, another, and eventually they come into battle with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah in a place called the Valley of Sidim, and they are routed. And all the time, in the first half of the chapter, Abram is offstage. He's not mentioned. And so it, it behooves the reader to start asking, well, what are Abram's political calculations? What is he thinking? What, what's in his advantage? And there's an argument to be made that getting rid of his near rivals by siding with the Babylonians might be to his advantage. On the other hand, the Babylonians pose their own religious challenges to, her, to, to Abram's uh, worldview. And so sort of like, I don't know, beholding the Iran-Iraq war, Abram decides, I'm going to stay out of this. I have no, no dog in this fight. There are no good guys in the battle of the five kings against the four kings. Exactly. Until he learns from a refugee sent by King Bela that his nephew and wives and their household have been taken hostage along with everyone else. And so at this point, this is when we're, we're, we're first introduced to someone named Abram the Hebrew. So all of a sudden, he's sort of being recognized not just as an individual or as a wealthy individual, but as the head of a, head of a tribe. This is the first time the word Hebrew is used in the Bible. Well, that's right. And this is why it's, it's one of many reasons it's, it's so interesting to me. And he is dwelling, we're told, uh, by the oaks of, of Mamre the Amorite, uh, the brother of uh, Eshcol and of Honor. And these were his allies. So suddenly you're, you're really beginning to understand that there is, there is politics taking place, and there is a strategic quandary, and there's also a moral quandary. And Abram has to think about how he resolves this. Now, again, cast your mind back two chapters to Abram's sojourn in Egypt, where in order to avoid conflict, in order not to risk his life, he ends up lying about his relationship with Sarah, Sarai, uh, and claiming that she's his sister so that the Pharaoh takes his wife into his bed. Almost like a concubine. Like a concubine. He, is, he in effect, prostitutes his wife. In a sense, that is the lesson of what happens, morally speaking, by his overwhelming desire to avoid death, to avoid conflict, that the moral penalty that he is paying then is too high. And it must be something that is on his mind as he's now looking at the prospect of what to do with respect to Lot. Although the Bible never tells us how Abraham feels about effectively prostituting his wife. We can imagine but we're never told. That's right. We, 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 we don't know. But so we have, to, we have to sort of get a sense of what he must be thinking, what his considerations are. As I mentioned earlier, in, in, the thir in chapter 13, he tells Lot, you go your own way, right? 
And in fact, you choose which land you want. So he might be able to say to himself, A, he's not my brother. He's my brother's son. B, we've gone our own ways. And he picked where he wanted to go. And he picked where he wanted to go. And so you might say he's getting what he deserves. He went to the cities in, 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 in the valley. He lived with the Sodomites. He's getting what he deserves. So then this raises the question, is he then his brother's keeper? Is he the keeper of his brother's child? And clearly there has been an awakening within within Abram, maybe having to do with the promise that the Lord has made him that he will be given the land and that his descendants will be as numerous as dust. And so he brings on, suddenly we learn that he has 318 trained men in his household. I have no idea. I'm sure there are rabbis who might explain what the significance of 318 is. But to me, this is like the Palmach, right? This is the pre-state elite unit that is going to do battle against a numerically superior enemy. And that, that must be the case because we do have biblical terms that signify lots of people, lots of things. 318 is definitely not one of them. 318 definitely means relatively few or absolutely few people. Right. I mean, it, look, it's not exactly the raid on Entebbe, but it's close. I That's mean, right. He is going on a long distance raid at night with some highly trained men in order to affect the rescue of his kinsmen. In fact, the Entebbe, the raid at the, the rescue at Entebbe is not the worst comparison. And, Great analogy. And by using a clever stratagem, and we, we learned something about it, he divided his forces against them by night and routed them and pursued them to Hobart north of Damascus. Now, you have to imagine, even 318, we're talking about the whole Babylonian army. This is an extraordinary victory against overwhelming odds, uh, prefiguring not just the raid on Entebbe, but so many of Israel's wars, the war, of, uh, the war of independence. And not only does he rescue the kings, but he rescues a lot with his goods, the women and the people. And they're returned. A complete victory. Complete, a complete total. A complete, this is 19, oh, I, I'm mixing analogies here, but this is 1967, right? Right. Maybe that's the better analogy. A, a surprise attack that achieves a stunning success. And we're not told how he does it. There's no clear technological advantage. We don't know how he does it. What we know is that he does it at night. There's clearly some kind of tactical genius at work that allows him to, to route his enemies by overwhelming numbers. Then something kind of remarkable happens, which is that out of nowhere, we have this appearance of the king of Salem, presumably Jerusalem. Malkitzedek, the king of justice, king of righteousness. He's a Canaanite king, so he's not, his God is not Abram's God. No, he's definitely, importantly, a Gentile. But before he comes, the king of Sodom comes out to greet Abraham, presumably to congratulate him. Right. And to make a deal. Congratulate him, make a deal. He's probably thinking, who is this extraordinary military man who does so much better than his numbers would, would suggest? I want him to be my ally. And then comes Malkitzedek. Exactly. And we have to sort of ponder, I think it's a, an in, interesting question for people to consider, the effect that Melchizedek's blessing has on Abram's state of mind. He says, you know, blessed be Abram by God most high, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And there's this moment in which perhaps Abram is put in mind that his victory may be attributed not just to 
his own clever stratagems or his own strategic wisdom in staying out of the initial battle so that he could fight later on, but that the hand of the Lord might be in this. And he's reminded of that crucially important fact by a Gentile. Machizedek, it should be emphasized, is a Gentile. So Abraham is mentored and learns about God from a Gentile. Yeah, that's true. Although he's referred to as by God most high, which does not sound like a, a polytheistic God. I mean, this is this is a, at a minimum a very righteous, uh, a very righteous Gentile. And so Abram, as an act of munificence, gives him, we're told, a tenth of everything, a tithe, in gratitude. And then this is this is what I find really fascinating. The last uh, the last few verses of the chapter, which is that the king of Sodom says to him, "Take the goods for yourself. Take your share of the booty." And so, just to set the scene, the king of Sodom comes out. To, he's he's literally coming out to meet Abraham. Out of nowhere comes King Malkitzedek, the righteous Gentile king, reminds Abraham that he owes his victory to God. And then Malkitzedek recedes from the scene, never to be heard from again in the whole Bible. And then the king of Sodom completes his destination, reaching Abraham, and begins a conversation that we've been waiting for. Right. And it's a conversation where the king of Sodom plays to type because he assumes that what Abram wants is booty. Why else would you go to war? in this world, other than your share of the spoils of war. And that, in fact, is the quintessential understanding of why nations go to war, right? They go to war to acquire wealth, possessions, prestige, territory, whatever it is. And Abraham then says to the king, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, maker of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, that honor Eshel and Amram take their share. This is a sort of psychologically really fascinating point. Abram is doing a number of things. One of them is that he wants his motives to remain pure and to be seen as pure. To use another historical analogy, this is Woodrow Wilson entering World War I after staying out. Wilsonian analogies are no longer in vogue, by the way, but I think this is, this right. is a fair one to make. This is Wilson staying out of World War I until he feels that he has to enter the war, but entering the war not in order to gain colonies or wealth, but entering the war in order to make the world safe for democracy. It is a high-minded purpose for entering war. Abraham enters the war because he is his brother's keeper, because he is mindful of his moral obligations, not simply his uh, national or territorial aspiration. And as you pointed out, I never thought of this, it's so interesting, as you pointed out, that notion was entirely foreign to the king of, of Saddam and presumably to all those he represented, which was basically every kingdom in the ancient world. Well, right, because they can't bring themselves to think that war would have any purpose other than wealth and prestige. And power. And here you have an example of Abram entering into a war explicitly for none of those things, distinguishing himself not only as a different nation, meaning having different borders, different citizens, different or subjects, different um, perhaps a different God, but an entirely different understanding of the relationship between moral questions and political questions. Right. 
And he was educated along those lines by Malkit Sedek, who comes out of nowhere to remind him of, and this, I believe, is also the first time that God is called uh, God the Most High, is from the, the Gentile mentor of, of Abraham, Malkit Sedek, who then disappears, having given Abraham the strength to do what you say, which is to tell King of Saddam, not only do I not want your possessions, I don't want a shoestrap, because in effect, I am a subject of God the Most High. Right. And it's, it's also not, not even a shoestrap should taint anything that I have done. But it's also a way, by the way, it's, this is what I find so beguiling and interesting about uh, this chapter, because it has an unmistakable moral purpose, but it also has an unmistakably valid geopolitical or strategic, whatever you want to call it, purpose, which is to say, I'm not just some other country that did you a favor. And we're now going to get along. And I am not going to be beholden to you because you gave me some wealth and possessions. Abram wants no, he wants to be in no position of being a benefactor or a debtor to the kings in the valley, to Sodom. Who were his former allies? Well, his, they were never exactly his allies, right? I mean, they are. Well, they had a common enemy. Right. I mean, this is a little bit like Israel coming to the, to the rescue of King Hussein Jordan during the Black September crisis in uh, 19, 1970. They at least had a common enemy, which were the other kings. Right. They have, they have a common enemy, but it doesn't mean they have a common purpose or a common destiny. That's right. And it doesn't mean they, have a, they share a common conception of what, in fact, transpired. And so Abram's declaration of independence here is not only that he's accomplished something politically and militarily, but he's also distinguishing himself morally and culturally and religiously very sharply from his uh, immediate neighbors. And he's doing so in a way that says, hey, I don't want anything. And that's, that's by the way, another aspect of it, which is the only thing that bestows more power than taking possessions, taking wealth, is not taking it, is saying, you know what? I don't need it. Because my, my sense of, of who I am, what kind of nation I am, will neither grow nor diminish according to my share of the booty. That is a remarkable statement of lordliness in his own right. Not even a shoestrap will I take. To say that you won't even take that is, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a quality of dismissal or dismissiveness that is really quite stunning and must have some, you have to think about the, the, the thinking of the king of some, like, who is this guy? Who made him the big cheese? Why is he so indifferent to the things that we care about? Material wealth. So it's also a way of elevating himself above these people who presume to offer him some share of the goods. So this is, I mean, I, I could go on about this, but this is, this is why I think that this particular chapter so often overlooked as sort of an adventure chapter in Genesis, in fact, tells us a lot about the Jewish understanding of political power, of just war, and of the distinction between Jew and Gentile when it comes to, to some of these questions. And, and I think a point you made earlier is so instructive. So when Abraham has no political or military power, when he effectively has to, or believes he has to, give Sarah to the king, and then we, the next time we see him, he has 318 shock troops. Right. So in that time, he realized that in order to have peace, and Abraham was above all a man of peace, he needed strength. Right. And, and it, it, it is, in a sense, this whole chapter also is an argument against Jewish pacifism. 
right? Jewish pacifism eventually leads to a form of helplessness that leads you to moral compromises with respect to you know, your, your very own wife that are morally untenable. And it's not an argument, by the way, for militarism. I mean, this is an argument for prudence, right? This is, this is in the kind of a classical, almost Aristotelian sense. Abram is exercising the virtues of prudence, or at least certainly the virtue of courage, which is considered by Aristotle a mean between cowardice and a kind of a heedlessness or recklessness, right? He's exercising that very, very carefully. And what this chapter tells us is how much he's actually getting out of a policy of the thoughtful, moderated, decisive, but moral use of force at the moment in which it is required, and also how much is acquired when power is exercised for a moral purpose as opposed to a material one. Well, Brett, thank you for such a fascinating discussion of Genesis 14, where I, I learned so much from you, and uh, I can see why Leon Cass was so impressed with the young Brett Stevens. Um, I've declined since then, but, you know, I had my moments. Well, it, your moments are immortalized in uh, Leon Cass's wonderful book on Genesis. Now, the concluding question always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to uh, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. Which I have not read, but go ahead. Well, the first page is magnificent. And this, this is what he says on the first page. He says, uh, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, well, one, I've learned that everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Brett, in your now two decades of being one of the leading public intellectuals in the United States and internationally, having written, spoken, live, recorded, basically every kind of discourse one can do publicly on every kind of national and geopolitical issue in, in our time. What are two things that you've learned about mankind? Off the top of my head, I like the line that there's no such thing as a grown-up, um, because I think those of us who are making our way through the dark of middle age, trying to figure out how to raise good children and be good spouses and all the rest of it feel strongly that way. Let me offer at least one lesson, which is that no lesson historically remains learned from one generation to the next. Questions that always, for the longest time, I took for granted as being settled have all been reopened by a new generation that never quite had the lived experience of of how the last one was uh, was settled. I taught a, a seminar at the University of Chicago in the spring, which was wonderful, really smart students. The seminar was on political rhetoric and uh, the art of political persuasion. One of the texts that I taught was Václav uh, Havel's The Power of the Powerless, which describes the nature of what he calls the post-totalitarian regime in Czechoslovakia in the mid-1970s. Uh, and trying to awaken students to what this kind of regime was, not only from an economic point of view, what socialism meant, but what it meant to live in a country in which people refused to speak their minds and constantly engaged in what is known as preference falsification, pretending to have ideals which they didn't actually have, pretending to su subscribe to beliefs to which they didn't actually subscribe how that is now, in a way, coming back to us today with an increasingly chilly climate for the free expression of ideas and hostility to 
Jefferson's concept that error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. Uh, so there was a failure of pedagogy in the 1990s and the last decade, which I think we're witnessing today, a failure to communicate to a new generation what it was we thought, you know, people your age and mine thought we'd learned in with the defeat of the Soviet Union. So I'd say that's that's a lesson that I think we're all confronting as we suddenly look upon like a new generation and saying, hey, guys, didn't you get this? And then saying, oh, right, you were born in 1995 or whatever, when the Soviet Union was was dead and buried and where not just the the politics of totalitarianism, but the psychology of totalitarianism had gone away. So therefore, are you saying it's, it's not really so much a matter of learning from history, but relearning from history? Well, all history is relearning from history, which is kind of like why we're doing what we're doing by looking at an early passage of Genesis and saying, hey, you know, this is telling us things that are relevant not only to biblical scholarship uh, or exegesis, but to our ideas about what, what politics and foreign policy ought to be about and why it's useful to have a foreign policy that is rooted in a moral concept rather than in a material one. So the, the, the lessons cut in all kinds of uh, in all kinds of ways, but I mean, I hate the Santayana quote simply because it's so it's become so so trite. But there's real wisdom in it. Well, Brett, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about so many different subjects and for uh, teaching me so much about Genesis 14, the continuing and eternal implications of it. Thank you so much, Mark. You are the God of the